if you're looking at the the records of the NESL, it was a fairly high-scoring league. I think the I think the Bundesliga, the German league, was the only league that that outscored it on a goals per game basis. But what was the reason for that? Was it the 35-yard line? Was it the fact that they gave points, extra points for goals scored? Now that I did like because that doesn't affect the rules of the game at all. That simply means that if you score more goals, you're going to get more points, which is an encouragement to go out and score. I like that very much. It could have been either of those things. It could have been the fact that at, at one point, if you remember, they decided they weren't going to have any ties. That every game had to finish uh, with a tiebreaker if it was tied. So there was no there was no way of assessing what, what the impact of the 35-yard line. The only thing we did know for certain was that nobody else used it and that FIFA was dead against it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hi, everybody. This is Tim Hanlon. Thank you for joining me here on Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast that's devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Today, we're focused on professional soccer, and there is no better person who is more well-qualified to opine on the history of professional soccer in this here United States than the guest we have coming up. His name is Paul Gardner, and he is a longtime soccer journalist, uh, most uh, visibly for a publication that uh, anybody who has followed the sport of soccer here in the United States uh, knows and has probably read a ton of called Soccer America. And Paul has uh, an interesting uh, history uh, with the sport coming over from England in the 60s, not even being qualified per se as being a a soccer journalist or a journalist for that matter. It's an interesting and fascinating story, yet uh, he is by all accounts revered as the dean of soccer journalists in this country, certainly long before covering the sport in this country was even fashionable. And uh, I think you're going to learn some some very interesting tidbits from from Paul's long uh, career in covering the sport and still going strong uh, in his mid 80s. Uh, God bless uh, here in the United States. Before we get to Paul, I want to uh, thank every one of you for trying us out. If you're new to the podcast, if you are a return visitor, we uh, can't thank you enough for subscribing and and rating us and reviewing us on all the great places like iTunes and stuff. You know by now that goodseatsstillavailable.com is the place to go to find out more information about what we're up to, how to communicate with us. You got some suggestions, some comments. Uh, you want to follow us on social media feeds. You name it, it's all there. Goodseatsstillavailable.com. And we thank you for your initial support so far. And we cannot wait uh, to get deeper with great guests and conversations in the months to come. So thank you. Stick with us. And uh, we look forward to serving your earbuds with uh, more fun and interesting conversations. Okay. Let's not waste any more time. Let us get to our conversation with the legendary uh, award-winning soccer journalist extraordinaire, Paul Gardner here on the show. First of all, I, I want to say thank you for, for making time. Anybody who has followed uh, the sport of soccer in the United States uh, or either in the country or outside of the country has uh, essentially grown up and depended upon uh, your descriptions of the sport and all of its trials and tribulations, shall we say, in this country. Um, I just think one of the best places to start is 
How did you even become sort of this consummate observer and reporter, if you will, of the sport of soccer in this country after having started as somebody in the pharmaceutical field or the pharmacy business? Yeah, pharmacy. I, I am. I was a pharmacist. I'm not now. They, um, they, uh, they have a rule when you reach certain age. You, you know, you're supposed to take uh, follow-up uh, tests and exams to keep yourself um, abreast of what's happening. And um, I haven't been doing that, so they put me on the inactive list, which is fair enough. I mean, it's you know, you should you should know what you're doing if you're supposed to be a pharmacist. I think. And, uh, if you haven't been keeping up to date, then uh, you know. In any case, I'm very old, so that's the end of that. Uh, but then they send you a sort of intimidating notice saying you're not allowed to use uh, use the qualification in anything you write or not mention it and not discuss pharmaceutical matters with anybody. About I mean, it's, it's quite <laughs> when they strike you off, they strike you off. But that was what I became, and my father was a pharmacist. He had a pharmacy, so that was all worked out that I would uh, take over the family pharmacy, but I knew it wasn't going to work even even as I was studying pharmacy. So, um, you know, it didn't, it lasted about a year that I worked as a pharmacist doing locum work. And then I, uh, I saw, luckily, an ad for a job in London, which pleased me because I wanted to go to London on a pharmacy magazine, which was very rare because there were only like three pharmacy magazines in the whole country. Um, so I applied for that and I got for that, which meant, you know, which meant it, it was good because it meant I was doing a totally different type of work, namely journalism, while still using the knowledge that I'd spent like five years um, acquiring. Uh, so that jolted me uh, into the journalistic part. And after about seven years of that in London, I got itchy feet and felt, well, you know, it's, it, there's no future in this because... Um, there were only the three magazines, and the editors seemed to be one of them disgustingly young. So I wasn't going to get any promotion. Um, and I, you know, if I'm going to do anything, I'd better do it now. I thought I was 29 then, so I decided to emigrate here. I immediately got, very luckily, a job on a medical magazine, which was slightly different from the pharmacy, not entirely. Different. I had that for five years, and then I, uh, I made some money, was able to save money, which I'd never been able to do in England. And I went off to live in Italy, North Africa in Italy, for a couple of years. Uh, when I came back here, that was 66, late 66, that was when all the um, North American Soccer League stuff was starting. I didn't know anything about it. I'd been in Italy, I hadn't been bothering to you know, work out what was happening in the States. Um, I'd always been uh, interested in soccer. I'd always followed the game. and I'd always been something. Or I don't hesitate to say a thinker about it, but I'd followed it in a um, what I hope was an intelligent way. Um, you know, not just by being a fan. My team is good and yours, yours sucks and, you know, that sort of attitude. Uh, yeah, but I'd, I just followed it in in what I thought was um, was a way that, you know, enabled me to feel enlightened about the sport. Well, so so you so you mentioned 1966, right? And that's that's actually a quite a pivotal year in in the sport of soccer in the United States, right? Well, it very much was, yeah, very much so. I mean, I was in I happened to, I shouldn't have been in England at all. I should have been in Italy, but when I was in Italy, I got a call from my mother there was a crisis in the family business and I had to go back 
to England for two or three months to settle that. And those mothers took in the summer and the World Cup. And I did go to World Cup games. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't covering the World Cup, but I did attend the games, including the final. Um, that sort of gave me a taste for that, I suppose. And then it was, it was uh, one of those things that was just extraordinary because you know, finally I had to leave Italy. I had to come back here after two years on a green card. They didn't allow you to stay out of the country for longer than uh, two years. So I had to come back. And on my way back, I stopped in at London. I had lunch with my former, former editor on the pharmacy magazine in London. And he was a guy who knew nothing about soccer at all, couldn't have cared less about it. And he said to me, he said, oh, it's a good time for you to be going back, isn't it? I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, yes, all this soccer going on there. So he was the guy who alerted me to it. Um, When I got back here, I arrived back here and stayed with a friend. I didn't have a job and I didn't have any money because I spent it all in Italy. Um, And I just made contact with as many people as I could. And um, now then, uh, to be honest, I'm quite sure that I was helped by the fact that I had an English accent. Which I don't, I never really, I don't like that business. So you've got, what a wonderful accent you've got, all that crap. I just don't like that. But did it help? Yes, of course it did, because people remember it. And if you have an English accent, and this still applies in the sport here now, they think, oh, well, he's English, he must know about soccer. Um, So to some extent, you know, you, you get a fraudulent ticket. To being an expert. Well, you're, you're you're being a little modest, I think, right? I mean, I, you clearly have have. Well, no, not entirely. No, because I mean, in those days back then, I had no background in the sport at all, other than being, as I say, a um, somebody who followed the game closely uh, since I was a boy. But my knowledge was limited. I didn't know it at the time. I've learned it since. My knowledge was very limited to English soccer. I didn't know much about <clears throat> soccer in the rest of the world and, and was probably quite um, dismissive about it, if the truth be known. The English can get very arrogant about their uh, about their soccer and their soccer knowledge. They still can, even though they haven't won anything in 50 years. But, you know, when I came back in 66, we just won the World Cup. Damn it, we had to be the best in the world, didn't we? Um, so I imagine I was insufferable, but I did. I, I was learning all the time because in England you tend to meet English people. You talk soccer, you're talking English soccer, you're talking English soccer history, you're talking about English players, English teams, and that's it. Um, when you come here, this great immigrant city here, you're suddenly talking with Italians and Argentines and Brazilians and Germans and so on. You get a much, much broader view of the game here. And uh, you'd have to be really thick, I think, and although I am a bit thick, I'm not that thick, um, not to have that greatly influenced the way that you look at the sport. Well, okay. It certainly influenced me a lot. So you're, 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 you come in, and you, it's 1966-ish, and, and you're coming back to the States, and, and what do you find? late 66, I got back here. Sure. So what do you find of the sport of soccer upon your return and your general interest, but yet no particular background or job, per se? Uh, what I found were these um, groups of two, two, actually there were more than two, there were three groups, as I remember originally, who decided largely on the excitement created by the World Cup that had just finished in England, 
that they felt the time had come to start a professional soccer league in, in the United States. And, I mean, it was no secret who they were. The names were all there. And um, I could get in touch with them if you like a call. And, so to speak, offer my services. And it was a time when uh, where they were really looking for people who did know something about the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still being touchy about what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't know that um, there was any future for me in soccer in those days. I think I'd, I'd have been totally stupid to imagine that there was, actually. But for the moment, it was something that I could do, and I could make a few bucks here and there. And it was enjoyable. And, you know, being an expert amongst people who didn't know, so to speak, it was it was not difficult. I mean, I'm not going to say I could have told them anything and they'd have believed it. I mean, heaven forbid that I should do that. But I, I felt I had I had a certain freedom of movement in that situation there because um, about a lot of the things that they were trying to get themselves involved in and to brush up on and to be knowledgeable about, I did know things. So. Well, it was a good time for me. Sure. So in particular, who are you uh, plying your wares with, shall we say? Uh, are these soccer executives well, or the, these journalists? The, the both, as it turned out, they ended up, as you know, with two leagues, the NASL and the MPSL. And both of them had offices, decided to have offices in New York. So that was a big plus already. Um, before that happened, I was getting in touch with the people who would be running the two clubs in New York. Each of those two leagues had a club in New York. It was uh, Madison Square Garden where the people running one of the clubs and a group uh, put together by a sort of a consortium of local businessmen. They were in the Pirate League, um, the non-sanctified league, the non-FIFA league, if you like. And um, I got to know the people, the businessmen, uh, who were the big shots in that? And for our, and for our uh, listeners, the NPSL is the uh, is the renegade league that Paul's referring to. That's right. NPSL was the non uh, what do they call it non non certified or whatever it is. Uh, it wasn't official. And that was that was I believe the uh, New York Generals, correct? It was the New York Generals, and they were called the Generals because one of the leading businesses in them was the General Tire and Rubber Company. <laughs> I think they were. Um, I think they were the main investors, so that's how I got the name, the New York Generals. And I got to know the guy uh, who was their leading light. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a, an education for me as well, because um, I liked most of these people, I must say. But I think on the whole, looking back, well, I, I guess I knew it at the time, they were pretty clueless. Um, about soccer and the fact that they should be listening to somebody like me was a measure of the fact that they, you know, they they didn't really know what they were doing. They shouldn't be turning to me. They should be getting hold of um, people with journalistic experience uh, in in the sport, which I didn't have at that point. What was the was the United uh, Soccer Association and the I guess it was the uh, New York. Uh, I can't remember the name of them. The New York Skyliners, I guess, was the. Were they the any skyliners? Were, were the um, Madison Square Garden uh, team? And, and, and they were, were they any better or more? They were Saro from Uruguay. Uh, you know, they they brought in yeah. they brought in foreign teams and, and re uh, renamed them for for the period here. And they were the um, team that FIFA had blessed, so to speak. They were the, they were the league that FIFA had blessed. Um, 
But obviously, I mean, there were a lot of questions about it. And you, you, again, and I certainly remember questioning at the time. I started writing about the league and its set up and who the people were doing and, and sending stories back to London, to the London Observer, which is, you know, called the Sunday newspaper. And I remember questioning in one of those stories that we, it was doubtful we had room for one pro league and one in two. This obviously wasn't the promising start. And that's, I mean, you didn't have to be Einstein to work that out, I can assure you. After one one year with both of them not doing well, the fans weren't there, the crowds weren't there, and each of them was blaming it on the other. And then they finally decided between them that it was the two-league situation which was killing it off. So they got together and merged. Well, well so... It- in your in your estimation, why I mean, wh- why was given that lack of knowledge about the sport, right? Given the fact that these are relatively naive businessmen when it came to uh, ushering in a brand new sport with no real deep and and widespread uh, background and, and heritage in this country, um, why do you think they were they went ahead with two leagues and and, and the differences? Do they see this huge pot of gold because of of the great ratings of the World Cup in in '66 or you know, were they just completely blindly naive that they just couldn't see in front of themselves because of that 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 greed, perhaps? I I think they. I mean, these these weren't stupid people. Let's let's get that out of the way. They were they were they were stupid as far as soccer was concerned. But uh, this was a business. They were running a business, and they surely should have known that this was that they weren't making wise business decisions. But. I've seen it quite a lot of times. In fact, you still see it now. People get involved in soccer, and they're, they're rich guys who've made a lot of money in business. Uh, so, you know, they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. They've made some right decisions in their life, some good ones. But it doesn't seem to translate into soccer. I don't know whether there's some sort of peculiar virus that gets into them as soon as they get into soccer, or whether there's something... Um, that, that it isn't them, it's the sport itself that just isn't amenable to new thinking, so to speak, because um, as sure as hell was a lot of new thinking, I mean, most of it not applicable to the sport. They, they more or less made it difficult for themselves. I mean, it, it, it would have been impossible not to understand, I think, that, um, that going ahead with two leagues was not the way to go. But they got into a competitive situation before before anything got off the ground, before I think either of them, either of these groups of people, they weren't even leagues then, had signed any players or decided when they were going to start or whatever. And um, they were in competition initially to get FIFA's blessing. And one of the groups, the NSL group, they won that competition, and that didn't go down well, particularly with the other group, and they weren't about to back down. Um, in that sense, they were, I guess, being uh, good businessmen. You know, they were, they were going to fight this thing, uh, which they did. And they did it in the best American way, the best business way that they could see. They got a national TV contract with CBS, to, this is the NPSL, yeah, the, yeah. The, um, the Renegade League, yeah, so to speak. Good, Renegade Maverick League, whatever it is, you know, the people who didn't have FIFA backing them. They got um, they got a contract with CBS. And that, if I remember rightly, they, they were touting that as the first ever regular season TV contract 
for games in colour in the world. I'm saying this has never happened before. Colour TV was um, of any sport. was widespread here, but it wasn't as widespread elsewhere in the world. I mean, I've watched plenty of soccer on TV. Well, not plenty. There wasn't that much on, but soccer on TV in England. And I'm pretty sure it was always in black and white. I don't remember watching colour. That may simply be because... You know, I, I couldn't afford a colour set. That was probably it. They were around, but they were something of a luxury then. So they felt they'd uh, they'd made a scoop there, and this was the thing that was going to help them. The other league, the official league, without the TV contract, were well aware of this, and they were a bit um, they were a bit scared by it. But they felt that things would work for them because they were pretty certain that the a league that was not um, acknowledged by FIFA would have enormous difficulty signing any players at all because all the players that they would go after uh, would be foreign players with foreign clubs and they would all be within uh, FIFA's jurisdiction. And FIFA would surely come out and say to these players, well, if you go and play in the States, you'll be blacklisted and you won't get another job anywhere else. And they would say to the clubs who might want to sell them, you're not to deal with this other league. But that sort of intimidation never really arrived from people and to, uh, I think, everybody's surprise, certainly mine. Um, the MPSL didn't have that much problem signing players. They were able to get players. They weren't particularly good players, mind you. But they were able to get professional players to come and sign. Phil Woosnam, who was there, ended up being their commissioner. He never started as commissioner. He was a player. Um, Welshman, he came here as a player and was very enthusiastic about the whole idea of professional soccer in the States and had visions and ideas of how far it could go and what it should look like and how it should be organized way ahead of anybody else's. Um, in fact, speaking to him in the, in the very, very earliest of days here, I felt, well, this guy's mad. You know, this is not going to happen the way he thinks it is. It didn't in the end, of course, but it came a hell of a lot closer than I ever thought it would. Uh, when they started, that's for sure. So when the USA, so we'll we'll, we'll move on in a, in a second. But when the, when the USA, the United Soccer Association, nineteen sixty seven competitor to the Renegade MPSL, when they decided that for a number of I guess logistical reasons and and startup uh, issues and whatnot, uh, decided to import in lock, stock, and barrel entire teams, did you kind of? Um, Worry that perhaps the bloom was off the rose before it even popped out of the uh, out of the ground. Uh, given that uh, that seems like maybe perhaps a desperate move. Well, that worry was always there, Tim. But I don't I don't think the idea the idea that they were importing um, that they were importing whole teams would have been the cause of it. They did that because they weren't ready. Um, the, the NPSL, the, the Maverick League, they. Um, they announced suddenly, out of the blue, that they would start operations in '67. Uh, and the, the the USA they weren't they weren't ready for this. They didn't know what to do. They were they they couldn't leave the whole scene just to the NPSL to establish themselves. while they did nothing. They felt that would that would be the kiss of death. That would be asking for trouble. They weren't organised enough to start signing players, so they opted for this business of. Uh, taking foreign teams that were already totally in existence um, from various countries around the world, bringing them here, giving them sort of names that maybe meant something in the cities that uh, that they would be playing in, and that they would play. They would, in other words, they they would be an operating league with teams, 
even though their teams would be totally abandoned the following year. Because all the time that, for instance, in, in New York here with the Skyliners, who, which was a team from Uruguay, Cerro, all the time they were playing, the Skyliners were busy behind the scenes building up a team made up of their own players they were signing. And that would be the replacement team the following year. That would be the real Skyliners team. didn't work out that way because of the merger. Um, you know, that, that cancelled all those arrangements. Well, so let's, let's talk about that. So 68, right, obviously cooler heads prevailed and, and this North American Soccer League rechristened. Well, I don't know about cool heads. I don't think there were many cool heads. <laughs> <laughs> Cooler, yes, I suppose. So, but that arguably was maybe the best shot then, right? Because everybody had come together. You had television. You had all the things basically sort of on one, at least for seemingly one page. But it still didn't go anywhere, now did it? No, it didn't. And you can only say, I suppose, that the country wasn't ready, that's all. You know, when we when we look back and think about how far the cosmos got in, in making this thing um, a public success, that in itself was pretty remarkable. And it sort of happened out of the blue, really, because the league was going along apparently quite well. But you know, it didn't show signs of suddenly bursting into a... 60, 70,000 crowd operation, which it which it did, um, all of a sudden, um, without really uh, any sort of explication. So, I mean, that that really was um, that really was a major surprise. But yeah, as you know, I mean, I'm telling you stuff. You know, that didn't last too long. I still I still don't have um, I still don't have an explanation for that. Maybe you do, but I, I I've never been able to work out why that um, why that happened. Like that. well, before before we get to that sort of that explosion, I I just kind of maybe uh, so okay. So you're 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 now a working journalist here in the United States. You're covering a sport that you love. Well. Uh, um, yeah, but only. I mean, I wasn't making a living. <laughs> I was staying uh, with a very kind friend, you know, who was basically pulling me up for nothing, almost nothing. And uh, I was um, potting around, going here, going there, talking to these people, getting a job, writing the old story here, doing some, uh, getting to know people, which was which was important. But um, there was no way that I could see that I could make a job make a living doing this. I was still looking at other other work opportunities. So yeah, I was um I was spending more time uh, spending quite a lot of time on soccer here, but not making much money. Well it had to be a little bit dispiriting given that, that the actual sport itself seemed to be dying uh almost right before your eyes as well. So well it was a strange situation. I mean I, I'd been involved in in the years before I the four years, five years I was here between fifty nine and sixty four I'd um, I'd already made a lot of soccer contacts in those years, but of course they were all um, semi-pro contacts because that's all it was in those years. Um, apart from the so-called International Soccer League that Bill Cox ran in the early 60s in New York. And again, I got to know Bill Cox. Um, I was testing the water a bit. I had this job on a medical magazine, but I spent time uh, trying to convince myself that I could be uh, a freelance journalist and photographer. I was also getting into photography in those days. That I found interesting, but um, that didn't, none of that lasted very long. And it, it, it taught me, I suppose, quite a lot about how insecure the soccer scene was in this country. There were always plenty of enthusiastic people. But... Um, their idea of what would work and what wouldn't work 
Their ideas never seem to hold water for very long. Uh, and the money always run out. Certainly. Well, so let's talk about that for a second. So the International Soccer League seems to actually be something, this is obviously a, pre- a precedent to 1966 and the World Cup and, and the, the boomlet, I guess, of the United States' interest in the sport professionally. But the, the, very few people kind of recognize sort of the role that the ISL played from, what, 1960 to, I think, 1965. It was basically an international importation of teams in a increasingly, you know, rigid uh, competition setup. Is that right? Yep, that's right. I mean, uh, Bill Cox, who was um, the strangest of guys, um, he was, uh, I suppose you could call him an entrepreneur, an impresario. He'd been chucked out. He'd been in baseball with, with in Philadelphia, but they'd thrown Major League Baseball. They'd thrown him out because he was, I think he was betting on his own team, which was a big no-no. Um, so he decided that, um, and this, remember, was in about 1960, so well before the 66 World Cup, he decided that um, soccer would be the next big, best thing. And when he looked around him, what he could see was that um, the only time they got big crowds or even close to big crowds was when a foreign team came on a tour and played the single single game in New York, one in Chicago, you know, that sort of thing. And he decided to build on that. He decided, well, that you know, they, they, they need... They need more than that. They need something at stake. They need a trophy. They need um, they need to sort of imitate a league during the summer. So that's what he did. He imported, um, uh, I think his biggest number, well, I think it was eight teams. And sometimes they were in two two groups of four. The first group would play, and then they'd go home, and the second group would play. And then the final would be the winner of the second group, and they'd bring back the team that had won the the first set and play the final between those between those two. The thing about Bill Cox was he was another guy who didn't know anything about soccer, but <laughs> somebody associated with him, and I never worked out who it was, um, knew a thing or two because um, he was able to bring in really very good teams, not the top teams. Not uh, not your Arsenal's and Real Madrid's and all those people. They would have been too expensive for Bill anyway. But he managed to get um, teams just below that level. But they were they were invariably good teams. And his his league had some pretty good soccer being played there. I mean, one one example was they brought in West Ham United from England, mm-hmm. who um, yeah, they're um, well known English English team, well known in England, not so well known outside England. But you wouldn't rate them amongst amongst those top teams with Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man United, they don't rate up at that level. But what they had, and we saw them uh, in in the years before the World Cup, they had Bobby Moore, who was the England captain, they had Jeff Hurst, and they had Martin Peters, who were three key players um, a few years later when England won the World Cup. Absolutely. Which was quite remarkable. Um, And they also had playing uh, a team that came in, Dukla, of Prague. I'd never heard of Dukes of Prague. I didn't know who they were. But they were a very good-looking team, and they had a marvelous young player who scored all, all their goals, uh, whose name escapes me for the moment. Um, and two or three of their players ended up on the Czech World Cup team in Chile in 1962 in the final. They lost the final to Brazil, as it happened. Um, well, do, do, but do, to do, find those teams with those sort of – those. those caliber of players on them was 
something had to be working pretty well for Bill Cox to do that. I, I always, I always puzzled at that. But Bill was sort of guy who kept his cards very close to his chest. He wasn't about to tell you anything about how he worked and operated and how he got the teams. So I never found out who was his who was his soccer brain. Maybe he didn't have one. Maybe he just looked at like the like the look of the names. That may be as good a way of any as. Uh, of getting good teams. My sense is that, though, uh, so it seems to the outside observer, it seems a little curious that in 65, that ISL format would would go away just as the World Cup was getting ready and obviously showing further interest in the United States, a pent up at least interest to get two leagues going here domestically. But I, my my understanding is that the ISL was basically potentially running afoul of FIFA as well uh, as a unsanctioned league. Um, and, and maybe that had something to do with it? I don't think so. I don't. I mean, if, if Bill had problems with, with FIFA, and it would have been quite likely that he did because um, he, had, uh, he had problems. Uh, they wouldn't have been directly with FIFA. FIFA. Bill Cox's problems were with the United States Soccer Federation. There you go. That's it. Who felt that he... They have rules about when foreign teams come over, they have to pay certain fees to the United States Federation for permission to play in this country. Uh, so Bill was obliged, theoretically, to pay a fee to the, the United States Soccer Federation. And I think he was always either late or didn't pay that. And uh, he actually, he did end up um, suing the, the United States Soccer Federation, saying, in effect, that they were... Um, they were anti-business. They were trying to put him out of business by by keeping him, um, uh, you know, by by setting him um, un, unattainable targets that, for the money that he should pay them. I think that's where he had his problems. I don't think the problems were directly with with FIFA, but the United States Soccer Federation, when they found that Bill wasn't cooperating cooperating with them, um, they turned to FIFA and said, uh, you know, will you help us? Because um, we need to either put this guy out of business or he's got to pay us money. I don't think FIFA wanted to get involved. Um, interfering in the local politics in each country is not or wasn't at that stage anything FIFA wanted to do. <laughs> um, so I, I, don't think, um, I don't think Bill Cox ever crossed swords directly with FIFA. Interesting, though, that it almost seems like it's killing a golden goose where you're actually generating interest in a sport that really, you know, was largely amateur uh, in this country until that time. Right. So. Well, yeah, uh, but there's been a lot of that where where the sport you still see it even today, where the sport seems to be working against its uh, its own interests. Uh, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that it it, it is bound to be right from the start was different from the other American pro sports because of the international aspect. I mean, what other pro sport in this country do you see a group of very powerful, rich businessmen? And you know the NFL, baseball, who have created a league, and the league's doing quite well. And uh, they're in charge; they do what they want to do. And suddenly along comes this sport here, and you've got a group of uh, rich guys who suddenly find that they're not totally in charge of a situation; that they have to um, do what a group of I don't know how you'd say that. I mean, they certainly saw them as sort of stiff-necked traditional conservatives in Switzerland, of all places, that they've got to do what these guys tell them. You know, and these guys are not American. What do they know about the American situation? 
So it, it, it was, and, and to some extent still is, difficult for Americans, especially those, those businessmen who were the pioneers in the thing, especially for them, to, to swallow that. They never really liked it at all. They wanted all the time, they didn't understand why they couldn't change the rules of the game if they wanted to. Why, why would they have to listen to what, um, to what these foreigners told them? Um, they didn't understand uh, the the mechanics of international trading of players, uh, the mechanics of playing other international teams. There was a lot that was totally new to them. I mean, they were new to the sport anyway, but to find that <laughs> that the regulations applying to the organization of it were so different from what it would have been if they started up a new baseball league, that came as a shock, I think, to a lot of those people. They hadn't realized what they were getting into. There. Well, I think it was pretty obvious circa 1971-72-ish, right, that, that perhaps this sport of soccer wasn't really going to take off at all as a professional endeavor in the United States. But yet, persistence, you mentioned Phil Woosnam. What do you think kind of brought it out of the, shall we say, the dark days? I mean, we're talking 1970, the NASL was only six teams you know, it was truly limping along, and you could you could argue it was probably this close to collapsing altogether. Well, yes, yes and no, because I mean, those were the years that um, that were building up to the sudden explosion of interest around the cosmos, which of course affected the rest of the league as well. When it when it did suddenly look uh, as though the league was going to be a big success, I mean, when the cosmos started drawing um, huge crowds, which would have been in the mid just past the mid seventies, and I mean that really was a surprise to everybody. I wasn't in my usual immaculate sense of timing. I wasn't in New York on the day, the night, the evening when they got this huge crowd for the first time out at Giant Stadium when they outdrew baseball. Uh, I was in uh, Buenos Aires. That was seventy-seven, actually, mm -hmm. uh, because the World Cup was going to be in in Argentina the following year. So I'm in Buenos Aires, and I was having breakfast at my hotel there when a couple of Argentine journalists came in. I was very surprised to see them. Uh, you know, they weren't staying at my hotel, that's for sure. <laughs> and they wanted to question me. They said that soccer, football, was outdrawing baseball in New York. And here's the, here's a report to prove it. A crowd of 68,000 or something had turned out, as John said. Now, I had a lot of experience by that time in not trusting reporting on soccer matters in the United States. And I told them, no, no, that, you know, that's, that's got to be wrong. <laughs> Forget it. There's something wrong with that. Don't, don't pay any attention to that. So I, I put them straight. But of course, it was true. It was perfectly true. There had been this incredible uh, crowd, um, which I found out uh, soon enough. Uh, and when I got back to New York, that's when those those two or three years that followed, um, that's when the league really blossomed and did for a short period, uh, thanks largely to the Cosmos. But other clubs um, did well, uh, started drawing crowds anyway. I don't think anybody was making any money, but um, the league looked like it was flourishing. Sure, but you were not you were not you were not ignorant to the to the 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 massive comet that was Pele's signing in 1975, right? And and the the slow build or actually interesting. You know, buzz building that occurred, you know, 75, 76, and then the move to Giant Stadium in 77. But even you, though, were still surprised that 60, 70,000 would, would actually 
hit, even though it was Pele's last year. No, I was I was amazed because, um, and, I, and I think everybody was. I mean, I, I haven't met anybody who who would tell you, oh yeah, we saw that coming. I don't think anybody did. I think anybody who tells you he did is probably lying. I, I uh, was totally unprepared for that. And, you know, as I told you, I explained to my Argentine friends that um, that, that couldn't be, but it was. I suppose the Pele, the Pele signing had helped matters. Difficult to assess what what effect Pelé had exactly on um, on the growth of the sport in in this country. On the field, I mean, he didn't it turn out to be the sort of spectacular guy who scored ten goals in every game, which I think is what a lot of people were <laughs> sort of looking for somehow. But um, that didn't happen. He did get a lot of uh, publicity, that's for sure. He, yeah, he got on talk shows and his name was around and people knew who he was and maybe the first time that um, they'd ever been conscious of the name of any soccer player. He wasn't he wasn't being popular because he was a dynamite soccer player. He was getting popular because he earned a lot of money, because he was arguably the most famous athlete in the world. I think he was. I don't think he was arguably in this country. It was arguable because everybody would have said, "No, it's not play." Muhammad Ali is, is the is the number one sports international sports star. I don't think that was ever true. I think Pelé would have won that competition by a country mile. Uh, but he got that sort of celebrity attention, which, yeah, I mean that that would have started setting the groundwork for what happened. I suppose, looking back. Um, I suppose a number of things came together because um, the celebrity side of it um, did help, and and the the people who were running the Cosmos, um, the Warner Brothers, were ideal people to take advantage of the celebrity people who were coming along. Uh, they had showbiz connections all over the place. Um, they had political connections, and they had plenty of money. So things look good for a couple of years. Then. Well, you actually did some work with Pele. You actually did some work with him, right? I mean, you did, you did a couple of movies in the early and mid-70s, uh, both before and during? Well, yeah, I had, but this was before he came here. I had I had work with Pele down in Brazil uh, for a month or two, very closely making a series of um, instructional films. You know, how Pele played and take a look at this and see if you can do it sort of stuff. Um, well, that, that wasn't the title, Paul. You know, the title, of course, is Pele, the master and his method. And the reason why I know that is because as a young <laughs> as a young uh, player uh, myself, I remember watching those movies every summer just during the 1970s. I believe it was sponsored by Pepsi, if I'm not mistaken. It was. Yep. Yeah. And it was um, seminal in, in most young soccer players uh, training, if you will, in this country uh, during the 70s. So thank you, I guess. Well, and mine too, that's the truth be known, because um, those that time I spent in Brazil um, with Pelé every day doing these films and with his chaperone, almost uh, professor, he was always called Professor Julian Matei, who spoke very good English and who, was, uh, who came when Pelé mm -hmm. did, uh, two or three years later when Pelé did come here. Matei came with him and was always his spokesman everywhere. Those two, between them, taught me uh, so much about Brazilian soccer, uh, about which I had known not nearly enough, let's put it that way. And that was another uh, way in which I felt, you know, that I, a bit late in my life, admittedly, I mean, you know, when this was, this was into the 70s, I was, I was in my 40s by now. But it, it, 
convinced me that um, I was now learning enough that I knew what I was talking about in a way that I found was um, not so common because soccer still made is still rather a tribal sport. It's still made up of all those various ethnic individuals who know the Italians know Italian soccer, the Germans know German soccer, and so on. But an international look at it, somebody who's made an effort to understand all the different things to bring them together and, and, and look at all of them equally. That was, that was, and still is to a large extent, rather uncommon. Now, who, who did, did Pele bring you or did the, the Professor Mazze bring you back uh, for the 1975 documentary you did, I guess, which was basically about Pele's first season in, in with the Cosmos? Uh, no, that came from the Cosmos mm-hmm. themselves. Um, they knew... Uh, Clive Toy, who was the general manager of the Cosmos in those days, another Brit um, who I'd got to know quite well. I always got on very well with Clive. Um, and he knew that, that I had done um, those films, those instructional films. And uh, he he asked me about it, you know, we, what company made them. And I said, well, you know, it wasn't really a company. It was a group of um, freelancers who came together just for those films. We, we wanted to know, well, can you put it together again and do us <laughs> a film? So um, we didn't get all the same people together, but we got a lot of them together. And, and we made we made the highlight film of Palais' first year with the Cosmos. But it was the old joke about the highlight. You know, we, we don't have a highlight film, we have a highlight slide. There wasn't much to go on because there weren't many highlights uh, that year. So we had to turn it into something... Uh, something a bit different, which we did by emphasizing the youth structure, the growing youth structure in the United States and showing a lot of shots of play with with young kids, um, you know, giving clinics, talking to them and so on, which was nice. It was very pretty. It didn't tell you much about his playing ability. Um, and in those days, funnily enough, um, we didn't we weren't able to find massive amounts of of tape, good quality tape of Pelé in action. It, you know, it, it, the sport uh, or sports in general maybe weren't quite ready for that yet. So we struggled a bit to get the sort of footage we felt we needed. Uh, it worked fairly well, I think. It's, it's not a bad. Is film. that film available anywhere that you know of? Uh, buried in a box somewhere? No, I don't. I don't know what's happened to uh, it. Um, I don't even know who owns the copyright. Well, I'll put that, I mean, I'll put that out to our listeners. It's called Pele's New World. It came out in 1975. Pele's New World. Yeah, I mean, originally the copyright would have belonged to the Cosmos, which means that presumably when um, when Pepe Pinton. Um, yep. Who was uh, Canalia's sidekick, sidekick, and in the, in the last dying days of the Cosmos, Pepe Pinton was was the general manager there. He ended up buying all, I think, uh, the Cosmos um, trademark stuff, everything. So I think the copyright would have gone to him, but then he sold everything to this latest group. Yep. Actually, not the latest group, but the predecessors of this latest group, going back three or four or five years now when they decided to rebirth uh, the cosmos. I will make a note. But then they, in turn, sold out to another group. So I just don't know. Yeah. I, there's a trail there that um, I don't know. I, I, will, make it, will, be I will make a note and, and make it my life's work to find that documentary for you, Paul. That's the last thing I do. <laughs> Um, well, I hope it doesn't take a lifetime I, to find that. I out. hope not either. Um, all right. Uh, so let, let me say a couple of other just interesting tidbits, because, um, you know, in the mid-70s and uh, late 70s, you actually became – uh, a uh, national presence on television, network television, 
uh, as basically the lead color commentator for North American Soccer League matches. How did that come about? Uh, uh, almost by accident again, I think. I had been... Uh, Phil Wilson called me one day and said, um, in his blunt Welsh way, do you want to do a book? Well, I had never, I had never done a book. Um, so I thought about it. It was a Sports Illustrated instructional book on soccer. They didn't have one. They had, you know, they, the Sports Illustrated had a series on all sorts of sports, um, including some quite obscure ones, but not soccer. So they wanted to do one. They'd approached Phil and they said, you know, if you feel that's beyond you, find, find yourself a writer and, um, you know, the two of you can do it. So I said, yes. So we worked on that book together. It wasn't a big book. Um, but it meant that I worked for pretty closely with Phil. Um, it meant I had to spend a lot of time going down to his office in Midtown Manhattan. He, he was a strange, Phil was a strange guy because he was very easy to work with some days, and on other days, it was absolutely impossible. I don't know whether that was uh, what's now known as polar, what a bipolar disorder or whatever, but he certainly sort of, to me, he seemed to have manic depressive. Um, turns um, uh, more than once I felt like walking out on the, on the whole thing I never did we finished it the book got published but it allowed me to get pretty close to Phil in, in many ways and um, again one day I got a call from him and he said um, it was pretty pretty well known by that time that the league uh, was negotiating with ABC he said, um, I want you to come down here now we're going through uh, some of the technical uh, requirements to do with soccer and, and telecasting uh, the game. That's all he told me. So I went down there and I sat in on a, on a meeting about, you know, how you should televise soccer and how many cameras and all this, that and the other. Uh, and that, as far as I knew, that was it. It was just a bit of technical expertise, which again, I didn't really have a great deal of. I had been doing television work at a lower level before then. And the meeting broke up and over to me came... Um, now I'm not going to remember his name, but he was the big he was the big sports guy at ABC. He was the number one guy who basically put ABC Sports on the map. Rune Arledge? No, it wasn't Rune Arledge. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He was the top guy, and he came over to me and he said, um, "Were you um, were you thinking that when we do the telecasts that, that you might uh, you might be employed on them?" And it, to me, it sounded like a question of saying, you know, that the next line was going to be, "Well, if you're thinking that, you must be out of your tiny mind." So I said, "No, no, you know, <laughs> I wasn't thinking that at all." And he said, "Well, I think you should," and that's all he told me. So I still to this day, I don't know whether Phil called me down there for the genuine reason that he said and that this guy was looking at me for another reason, but it worked out that they did offer me the job. Um, so I must have impressed somebody there, I suppose. Was the, so was was that before or after? So what of what of TVS, the uh, syndicated network that the Eddie Einhorn? It was before put that. Um, that was Eddie Einhorn working out of Chicago, I think. Um, right. Uh, and that, you know, that was one of these strange networks that he had cobbled together, picking local radio stations in all the top markets and bringing them together to uh, to buy stuff that his um, 
his group had put together. And the, the games were televised in a rather perfunctory way. I mean, it, it, you know, they weren't, they weren't major huge productions of spending a lot of money on. But uh, for me, it was a pretty good experience. I got to travel around. I got to meet a lot of people. I got to know uh, a fair amount about television. I got to know how not to, not to trip over the wires and how not to say shit on air and, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I found that um, I always enjoyed doing that. Um, whether I'd like to have made a total career out of it, I'm not so sure about that. But um, well, you must admit, you must have made a good impression. I, I was in my research. I saw there's a great quote by the uh, the late Jim McKay, who you shared the microphones with uh, on the ABC broadcasts from '79 to '81, and I he's quoted as saying, "He is as incorruptible as anyone I've ever worked with," and that's of you, Mr. Gardner. Um, so yeah, I, the- I remember him. That, that came out in a newspaper article. I, you know, I I read it one morning uh, when we were on uh, we were on the road somewhere. I think it was down in down in Florida. It would have been Tampa for a wheel or Fort Lauderdale. Those were the two clubs then. Um, I remember reading it. I was you know. I was amazed. I had to go and thank Jim immediately. But Jim was, you know, it's a very low key guy and very very professional in everything he did. It was one of those guys who admitted he didn't know anything about the sport, and he would turn to me to find out about it. Now, I've met over the years hordes, hundreds, thousands of guys who don't know anything about it, so <laughs> and are willing to admit it, and they say, you know, and I wear you're the expert, you tell us. But a lot of those guys turn out to um, not know anything about soccer, this week, but next week they know everything. It's it's extraordinary how quickly how quickly they learn everything. Those guys are very difficult to deal with for me. Jim was never like that at all. Jim was modest about his knowledge, would admit when he didn't know, and um, was still capable of producing very very professional work, which sounded as though he uh, not exactly an expert, but he felt and sounded fluent in, um, in in the soccer language, so to speak. And that made him, of course, very, very, very easy to work with, which wasn't always the case with some of the TV people. You know, where you've got to work closely with somebody and you're on air, where you've got to watch what you're saying anyway. Um, if you don't have some sort of easy relationship with the other guy, it could be very difficult. Also, if you do watch some of those clips, he also had the uh, uh, the, the delicate touch, I guess, where he was essentially trying to call the action for those who actually knew what the sport was about, but yet you could hear the stopping and the educational moments of introducing or reintroducing the sport to people who had never really seen it before. So not, not an easy thing to do. Well, we had a lot of um, discussions about how much uh, didactic stuff we should put in telecasts, how we should, uh, whether, whether we needed to explain the offside rule, for instance, which always gives people problems, apparently. <laughs> they felt that we needed to do that. I made the point, which I thought was very clever at the time, and actually it did work. Um, and I said, well, you know, we did. <laughs> so you explain the offside rule the first time it comes up, which could be in the first minute of the game, quite likely to be, actually. What about people who turn on five minutes late? Are you going to explain it again? Are you going to explain it every five minutes for the people who come in? Um, that produced a lot of joking about and laughing. No, no, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, you know, I think you should make a decision. We'll explain it once during the telecast. 
maybe halfway through the first half is the right time to do it. So we we came to agreement about those things, and the agreement was easy to acquire simply because of Jim. If Jim said that's the way we want to do it, then that's the way it would get done. And he was very very reasonable about all these things. We had in those days the Cosmos had a young um, Paraguayan player called uh, Romero Romerito, who was known as certainly. Um, and his name was Julio Cesar Romero. Romero, mm-hmm. and we were discussing a game pre-game one day, and Jim came out and he said, "Oh yes, and, and we're going to do a feature on uh, on Julius Caesar." And I said, "Well, who's Julius Caesar?" And he said, "Well, it's Romero, Julius Caesar Romero." <laughs> we, you know, you you can't make fun of that. You can't make anything out of that. I mean, that's his name, Jim. You know, and it's not Julius Caesar; it's Julio Caesar. And he said, no, we're going to call him Julius Caesar. And I got all bent out of shape because I, I you know, one of the basics of written journalism is that you you, spe- you spell people's names right. That's uh, what I was told in my earliest days of journalism. He said, spell, what was it, spell, spell their names right and keep your eye on the money. That was the, <laughs> was the, <laughs> the advice that I got. It's not bad advice, actually. So, you spell the names right, and the equivalent of that on air is that you pronounce them right. And I, I was insisting that it must be Julius Caesar. You can't work and make funny, funny comments about Julius Caesar. So we left it at that, and they were going to do Julius Caesar, and I wasn't happy with it. And then the next day, we started, and Jim was talking about Julius Caesar. And I said, well, I thought you were going to do Julius Caesar. He said, yeah, well, we changed it. <laughs> Well, and that again, I'm sure. I'm sure it was Jim. I never bothered to, you know. There was no point in my saying, "Ha ha!" Well, I got you there, didn't I? You know, no point in gloating. I just sort of nodded to myself that I'm sure Jim told them he thought about it and he decided that that I was right on this one. And you probably saved him a lot of grief in the process. So I'm sure he was very uh, uh, appreciative of that. I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose so. But he was a wonderful guy to work with. I mean, you know, I never had any. Any problems with Jim at all? He was he was supportive, and he was not well. Put it out his crudest. He was not loudmouthed. He didn't bombast while you were on air. He didn't uh, talk you down. He it, it was just very very pleasant, uh, very pleasant indeed. Well, and there are some great broadcasts that you guys did together, including that 1979 playoff uh, marathon between the uh, Cosmos and the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps, who some say which some say was the sort of the greatest sort of game ever played in the NASL. That's debatable, but... Uh, well, it might have been. It seemed to go on forever. I think it went to what well, they had then, the minigame, didn't it? Minigames, a couple a... of shootouts. But but you've never really been a big fan of the shootout, right? No, I hate the shootout. Now that you mention it, yes. Do tell. I don't like it at all. Why not? In any form, either in the sort of straightforward penalty kick form or in the... You know the rolling shootout, which is what what the uh, NASL had. Um, I don't like it for a very very simple reason. That is that as a well, let's get rid of the rolling shootout first. I particularly dislike that because it was something that nobody else did. I didn't think that we should be doing in our league. We should be employing something which nobody in the rest of the world was employing because that that made us different in some ways, and I didn't think that was the way to go. I think I thought we should be rather carefully trying to be like every other club in the world. But, you know, that, uh, that was my personal opinion. 
FIFA evidently had the same view because they didn't like it either. But the the argument against both of those shootouts is that they're, they're add-ons. They come at the end of the game. In other words, you've played um, an overtime game, which is 90 minutes plus 30, so you've played two hours of soccer and you've been unable to come up with a result. And now suddenly you're going to say, well, you can forget those two hours because we're now going to have a shootout. And this is what the result depends on. So now the game, the game itself, the two hours that have been played are dismissed. You can, they don't count for anything. What counts now is simply this, this little rigmarole with um, running forward with the ball and trying to beat the goalkeeper, which means that um, you can... You can play for the shootout. In other words, you can, if, if you're the weaker team, you feel you've got a chance of winning the shootout. But the shootout theoretically is a 50-50 thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can defend enough and basically frustrate a good team, so let's say the Cosmos, for the overtime game, once you've done that and kept the score tied, nothing, nothing, 1-1, one, one, whatever, you're now into the shootout and you're going to feel that you've you've almost won the game because you've managed to hold this team, and now you're on uh, you're on level footing with them. And that did not make for a good game. That really ruined the two-hour game that preceded it because you were playing so defensively. I felt that um, any sh- any tiebreaker uh, that should be used should be one that worked during the two-hour game. And what I recommend, always recommend, and still do recommend, um, is that you count the corner kicks. Because if you're counting corner kicks, they they start the minute the the opening whistle for the game goes. Mm-hmm. And if, as you approach the 90-minute mark, one you've still got no score, but your team has score has notched up 15 corner kicks, and my team has only notched up 10, mm-hmm. there's no point in my continuing to be defensive. I'm losing the game. So I've got to get down your end of the field. And this is in the regular game. And I, I feel that a tiebreaker of that sort would promote a much better game leading up to a situation where you would get a result, you'd probably get goals, and you wouldn't need the, this ridiculous um, rigmarole of the shootout. So how about uh, the NASL has some, had some other uh, nuances to it. So what about the 35-yard line as the offsides line? How, how did you take to that? Did you think that that helped add offense? No, I'd say it's the same, the same thinking, Tim. We, we were playing a game that nobody else in the world was playing. I didn't think we should be doing that. I mean, if we wanted, um, or if the NASL wanted his teams to play against international competition, it didn't make sense to be playing a game which they would not be able to play when they played international games. The 35-yard line was a was a Phil Woosnam invention. He was very proud of it. He said that the idea was that a lot of the stadiums in the early days, a lot of the stadiums were football or baseball stadiums where they had to squeeze a soccer field in, and a lot of the fields were narrow. Um... In other words, by narrow, I mean less than 70 yards wide. Mm-hmm. They were down to 68. So one of them, I think, was even much narrower than that. And that concentrates the players together. And uh, it made, according to Phil, it made the offside. Offside calls became far too frequent under those circumstances. And he felt that by having a 30-yard, 35-yard line at each end of the field, 
created a, a whole area in the middle of the field where basically you couldn't be offside, um, which allowed players to move around much more freely. Whereas with the you know with the standard rule, you can push all you can push all your defenders up to the halfway line, um, and it means that you know anybody running behind those defenders has got to time his run very carefully, or otherwise he's going to be offside. And that's a whole half of the field that you're calling offside. And if it's a narrow field, it becomes even easier for the defenders to um, to catch players offside. So, so Phil had that idea. He also felt it would uh, it would create more goal scoring. Um, we never knew the answer to that because they had other changes at work as well. If you're looking at the the records of the NESL, it was a fairly high scoring league. I think the I think the Bundesliga, the German league, was the only league that that outscored it on a goals per game basis. But what was the reason for that? Was it the 35-yard line? Was it the fact that they gave points, extra points for goals scored? Now, that I did like because that doesn't affect the rules of the game at all. That simply means that if you score more goals, you're going to get more points, which is an encouragement to go out and score. I like that very much. It could have been either of those things. It could have been the fact that at, at one point, if you remember, they decided they weren't going to have any ties Every game had to finish uh, with a tiebreaker if it was tied. So there was no there was no way of assessing what what the impact of the 35 yard line. The only thing we did know for certain was that nobody else used it and that FIFA was dead against it. I mean, FIFA approved it on an experimental basis and then apparently forgot about it, um, forgot that we were using it um, until somebody drew their attention to it. And this was after it had been in use for five or six years. And then FIFA got. FIFA got on their high horse and said, got in touch with the with the United States Soccer Federation, and told them that they had to tell in the, the NSL that they got to stop. I I think that point system. I I I could see your points on the on the 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 thirty five yard line, but the, the, I think the point system is a a relatively benign way to in, encourage more. Um, attacking soccer, which I know is is certainly something near and dear to your heart. Well, yeah, it, I think so. I mean, and for, I, I can't see any objection to it at all, really. Do you know what the, the objection that was given to me by a lot of people was? Oh, yes, but, you know, um, uh, you, you're saying, what are, you, what are you saying? You're saying one point for a goal, but only up to three goals. And then when you look at the points total, you've got to start adding in, you know, when Americans will need. They were saying, in effect, that Americans are, are too stupid to be able to work that out. Well, I mean, that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But anybody yeah. could work that out. And it, it is a good non-rule-invasive. Non You're not altering the rules of the game in any way at all. You're just um, trying to instill a different mindset in the players. You know, keep playing, keep trying to score goals. Could be important. All right. Well, two last thoughts here. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for your time thus far. This has been fantastic. Um, so why do you think the NASL, and everybody's got an opinion, but why do you think the NASL died its untimely or perhaps overdue death circa 1985 or so after having seen such great heights uh, and had made such progress from the earliest, darkest days prior to the 66 World Cup. Why do you think it, it collapsed? Well, I think we're into um area of uh, economics and business cycles, uh, which I don't profess to be any sort of expert. And there was a change in... Um, as I, as I recall people telling me, or trying to tell me anyway, trying to get me to understand that uh, when when those leagues had started, they they were able to use soccer teams as a way of 
uh, writing off, or not writing off, but as a way of um, not paying income tax. In other words, if they didn't spend the money on the soccer league, it was going to go to tax of mm-hmm. one sort or another. So it was an encouragement for them to be involved in another enterprise, um, which in a way was not um, draining away too much money. It was draining away money which they were going to have to pay in tax if they weren't careful. That rule apparently was changed in some way, which meant that they couldn't write these uh, these losses. And, and every team was losing money, even the Cosmos were losing money. No, 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 I don't think any team made money here. Maybe Maybe Seattle did a bit. So it was important, uh, if, if, if what I'm saying is true, then uh, it was important that um, suddenly it wasn't, uh, it wasn't so attractive to the businessman as a, as a tax write-off, if you like. That's a very interesting theory. I've never, I've never really heard that before, but it certainly makes sense, especially if you, given, you take into account what the Cosmos went through, right, with their Atari division, Warner Communications. I mean, that was a huge... Uh, sinkhole financially for Warner, and that uh, arguably is, you know, probably uh, one of the major reasons why they spent less time and money uh, on that team circa 82, 83, and, and that didn't help the league writ large either. No, um, that, you know, we got wind of all that stuff going on there. Um, these were fringe, as far as the soccer element was involved, these were these were fringe areas at one time. I mean, I'll admit I didn't pay much attention to them, A, because I wasn't interested in them. I didn't understand them anyway. But every so often I would run into Canalia and he would give me a gloomy assessment of what was going on at Warner Brothers. He, he pretty much knew, I think, that um, the writing was on the wall. Never actually came out and said something like that, but he would say things like, oh, it doesn't look good for soccer and all that sort of thing. So something... Something in the in the business circle in the business world was was certainly not helping. It wasn't a good time to be trying to promote or sustain um, a new league in a new sport. It, it, life has suddenly become very difficult for them, and certainly a lot of the um, a lot of the owners had got into it expecting um, to get rich quickly, and all you had to do was put these teams without really thinking about what those teams were, put them on the field, and the fans would come. And um, the sites that they saw in pictures of games and films from virtually all the other big countries in the world, uh, huge stadiums full of people, that that would be repeated here. Um, when it didn't happen that way, and it didn't happen that way, in fact, it never really happened that way, not on a league-wide basis, when they realized that not only were they not making money now, but they couldn't see any financial light at the end of the tunnel, um, so many of them, the guys who told you the previous day were in this thing for a long, for the long haul, they wanted out. And so they got out. Initially, they got out and other owners came in. But I think as that process went on, the, the quality and the depth of pockets of the new owners who were coming in got more and more shaky. So that by the time 1984 came around, when the league was dwindled down to about half a dozen clubs, it was pretty obvious that um, you were left with, I mean, Lamar Hunt was certainly the owner who stuck with it longest, stuck with it, in fact, to the point of being the owner of the Dallas team in this league, in the MLS now. He's been around, mm-hmm. uh, well, he's not around now, but his son is. Um, so the Hunt family has been involved for a long, long time in this, and has vowed to keep with the sport and has done that. Nobody else, to my knowledge, has done that. And, you know, as as business decisions, um, 
I'm not going to say I respect the man, and respect is not a word I would use under these, but I certainly understand them. Um, and and yeah, that's, what you have, that's what you have to put up with. So I think the business climate got turned hostile to the whole idea. Not hostile to soccer as such, but hostile to this business of trying to sell this new sport. Nurturing it and investing in it. Do you, uh, from a soccer perspective, do you think the rise of this indoor soccer game in the early 1980s and the more exciting and fast-paced and high-goal-scoring kind of thing, did, did you give any credence to that helping decimate, if you will, or, or uh, bring about an earlier demise of the outdoor game? Um, I don't think it helped, but I think the outdoor game was... By the time the the indoor game started to make inroads, and they were they were signing up um, the outdoor club's players, so that didn't help. But I think the outdoor club, the outdoor game was on the skids um, before that started, and I think the um, the indoor game. I, yeah, I wrote about it once. I called it the cuckoo sport that that had been fostered in the nest of NASL, and it ended out ended up turning out the NASL clubs, throwing them out of the nest and um, making a sport of its own. I mean, I I never particularly liked indoor soccer, but again, you, you know, I, I couldn't help but understand that there were so many people around by that time who had had jobs of one sort or another, still did have in, in his dying days with the NSL, um, who would have been completely out of work. But the, the um, MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League, uh, that gave them work. Um even though the, 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 some of those people involved knew that this wasn't really soccer and they were a bit ashamed of doing it. Um, there, were, there was an Irish player that we had here. I forget which club he played for in NSL. And um, I was pretty friendly with him. And we used to have conversations about it. And he became an indoor player suddenly. And I remember calling him saying, you know, what's this indoor soccer? I never thought it would be you. And he said in a very quiet sort of Irish way, well, um, I haven't told my father yet. <laughs> it was frightening to tell him that he was playing indoor soccer. That's the sort of attitude that that was around in those days, um, because well, virtually all the people, obviously, none of them had grown up with indoor soccer. Really, hadn't existed. They'd all they'd all switched to it later in life. Um, it didn't help um, the NSL situation, but I, I don't think that was the key thing. I think the key thing was. Um, the business climate was was suddenly wrong. That the it, the league had been going on for how long? Did it last about twelve years, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Sixty-eight, seventy-eight, eighty-four. What is that? Sixteen years, whatever. After all that time, there was still no no light at the end of the tunnel. And I think you know they'd run out of investors who were willing to um, willing to commit under those circumstances. So, well, all right, let's let, let's let's okay. So let's wrap up with one maybe nice uh, uh, bow tied gift wrapped question. Um, since you know you have seen the the rise and the fall and the rise again, uh, and the maturation of the sport in the United States, perhaps unlike any other uh, sports journalist uh, in the country, and um, we now have a league, you know, a, a Division One pro league, and I would argue even a a, a quite uh, successful and well-rooted series of, well, at least uh, at the Division three level, minor league system. Uh, it seems a little bit more stable, certainly. Um, 
But we also have a professional Division One league now that is approaching the same amount of teams. I think by next year or two, you're going to be at 23, 24 teams where the old NASL sort of uh, peaked, shall we say. Um, do you see any similarities uh, or dissimilarities to the the rise, the fall, and then the rise again, and then the dramatic fall again of the NASL? Are there any lessons there for MLS, do you think? Uh, or do you think it's just different this time? Well, MLS has made it. I mean, I've never gotten them to admit this, but I'm quite sure they did, um, made some sort of agreement amongst themselves that they would not repeat the mistakes of the NASL. And one way to not repeat those mistakes was not to employ people who had worked in the NASL. And in the early days of MLS, there were hardly any people around, despite all the experience that was around in this country from people who had had general managers' jobs or coaches' jobs or whatever in the NSL. Virtually none of those people was employed by MLS. Um, I, I, I thought that was childish, frankly, a little stupid. I mean, a, a guy like, uh, well, who I've already mentioned, a guy like Clive Toy, who had been the general manager at the Cosmos in his heyday. Sure. Why would you be determined not to employ him? Because that's what it looked like to me. Um, so they did that. Um, whether that was the reason uh, that they have avoided a lot of the mistakes, I don't think so. I think they, they knew what they felt the mistakes were. Um, the one that always comes up top of the list people are most critical about was that the NASL expanded too fast. I think that's... Um, yeah, I don't think the NSL had any option at that point. It was a league that had to expand. Um, if you're going to be a major league in this country, you can't do it on the basis of 10 or 12 teams. It's you know All the, the major league sports in this country, all of them have close to, to, I think, 30 teams, which is a bigger soccer league than anywhere else in the world. Most of the top leagues in Europe have 20 teams, the Premier League in England. Is 20, the Italians have 20, Spanish have 20, the Germans have 18 for some reason or other. But this country is much bigger. 30 is about right, and that's what you need to get the spread of their favorite word of markets, meaning cities, venues, uh, to attract uh, nationwide TV and so on. You've got to have that. And that's mm -hmm. what uh, I think Phil Wisdom who was the commissioner until very late in the day. But as the league began to fall apart and the owners started to turn on Phil and they got rid of him, and they brought in Howard Samuels, who <laughs> suddenly, to rescue them, they're bringing in a guy who knows absolutely nothing about soccer at all. But he was supposedly a good businessman. Um, not good enough because it didn't work and the league folded. So I think, um, I think different circumstances... Uh, I've applied to both of them, particularly to do again with the with the business climate in which these things flourish. I think the uh, the way MLS has and did from an early stage concentrate on again you can thank Lamar Hunt for this on building stadiums. I think that's been a huge plus for them. That's something the the old NSL never did. Not not a single soccer stadium was built during the years of the NSL, which sort of uh, showed uh, an insecurity about the owners that they weren't going to spend their money building a stadium for a sport which might not last. Um, mm. This league, the MLS, with these owners, 
uh, starting with Lamar Hunt in Columbus, um, have all agreed, and now I think they have to agree as um, as part of getting a new franchise, that they will build a new stadium, that they will build a soccer-specific stadium. So we've got a whole series now of soccer-specific stadiums, which means that those clubs, where those stadiums are, they have a home. They have a place you can go. They have their, their stores and their shops there. They have, a, they, they have other events there. They can become a presence in the communities. That was difficult for the NASL clubs when they didn't really have a home. Uh, their home was where the football team played or the baseball team played. Uh, that's been a huge factor in um, in helping uh, MLS to establish itself as a genuine major league. I mean, don't don't you find in your your speaking and your travels and your talks here that the idea of specific soccer stadiums, which let's see, is a comparatively new idea. Um, that, that that is a big factor in helping the growth of the MLS? I think so. I, I think it gives some some long-term uh, vision that uh, we want to keep the league around, right? Yeah, exactly. That's it. Long-term thing that we're here. And this proves it. This is, you know, this is concrete and seats in the field. Um, we can't we can't pack up and, uh, well, we could do, but it's unlikely. We've, we've made a commitment. We, we have faith in the future of our sport, faith enough to build uh, these stadiums, which, you know, and each one that's built gets a little bit better than the previous one, building on experience. And they're really very good. I mean, I've, I've you know, I've been impressed with the, with the way these stadiums grow. And the, the first one, the one in Columbus, when they televised games from Columbus now, um, it looks awfully sort of no frill. Oh, it is. Uh, which, yeah. of course, it was at the time. But if you look at the newer stadiums, like the one in San Jose or, or right here in New New Jersey, where the Red Bulls are. These are these are very nice, very neat, um, small, smallish anyway, uh, stadiums, and they're just right for the sport. So I mean that that is something they've done extremely well, um, and it's simplified their own problems too, because as long as they were using particularly baseball fields, uh, scheduling games to avoid having to you know having to vacate the stadium, in fact, because the baseball team was playing there. Made made scheduling problems enormous for the old for the old uh, NASL, yes, but- and I think there's a there's a better feeling around, uh, not nearly as good as it should be. Um, we could be doing this league could be doing a hell of a lot better um, if it would basically sign sign the right players and stop signing. Oh God! I mentioned earlier that, um, that soccer was a tribal sport, and, and you still get. Coaches who come in from wherever they come, if they're foreign coaches, and they want to bring in players from the country where they come from. Does this make any sense? Frankly, no, it doesn't. Um, we've got an enormous amount of talent in this country, which is totally under underemployed, underexploited, underappreciated, um, and that, that's the that's the Hispanic talent in this country. It's not used. It's not encouraged. It's not taken care of. Um, it's just beginning. The, the clubs are just beginning after all this time. Uh, since uh, 96, for heaven's sake, they're just beginning to understand that signing uh, over-the-hill players like the, like the Brits Lampard, uh, Gerard, both of them mm-hmm. have gone back to England and didn't make any impression on the sport at all here. Whereas if you're bringing in players from south of the border, um, 
particularly Argentines lately, have mm. been doing very well in this league, and they're good players. They're not top of the middle player. Maybe maybe they've got one or two caps. They've played for Argentina once or twice. But they've never really made it at that level. Uh, but they're younger players, and they're very, very good players. Um, that is only just about now uh, beginning to be realized, uh, much later than it should be. That that you know that irritates me, and it's not an encouraging talk because you're thinking, well, how, how, why would it take that long to recognise the Hispanic talent? Um, and at the youth level, where we've got, I think we've probably got to spend the most money on youth development than any country in the world. Uh, we may have more numbers. I don't know. Russia might have more. China, I don't know. But uh, we're doing pretty well there. Uh, but we don't win anything at the youth level, not internationally. We're sitting just below the border, just below where the Trump wall will be erected. We have Mexico, which is one of the most successful countries in international youth soccer. And yet, when it comes time to bring in people to tell us how to produce players, we bring in Belgians, we bring in the Dutch, we bring in the French. We never turn to the Mexicans. Now, Maybe you have an answer to that, and maybe the answer is an ugly one that I don't want to face up to. But I think it's it's um, it's a suicidal approach. We've got some of the best players, best young players in the world, right on our border, and in fact, we've got a lot of them potentially in this country who are growing up here as Americans, the Mexican, you know, Mexican Americans. They're Americans. They're not Mexican Americans. So one last question there: How about single entity? Right. So some would argue that even from a business perspective, it's still a relatively artificially supported kind of proposition and that only when you can remove those sort of artificial supports and let teams promotional relegation, uh, uh, you know, compete more directly for players, you know, a more open market kind of status. Do, do you think that ever happens in our lifetimes and or if that's a good idea? Promotional relegation? No, I don't. And I hope it doesn't happen. Um, I'm sick and tired of listening to the what we call the Euro snobs going on about promotion and relegation. And the only reason they do it is ignorance, because that's all they know. There is no promotion and relegation in uh, National Football League or in hockey or in baseball. Does that damage those sports? Are they lousy sports because they don't have promotion and relegation? Not that I'm aware of. And you wouldn't get anybody to invest in, in pro soccer at all. If you told to go, if you come along and they say, well, we want 150 million from you for a start, that's where you're going to have to pay to buy the franchise. Now, you do understand that next year, if you don't have a good first year, next year you could be playing in the boondocks against teams you've never heard of. You're not going to invest that money. You're just not going to do it. It's a nonsense. So I, don't, I wish they'd mm -hmm. shut up about them, promotion and relegation. Pay attention to what's here and, and make it work. And, and I, think, I think they can do that. I think, um, as far as single entity is concerned, that that will have to slowly mm -hmm. fade out of existence. I mean, that's self-limiting. Um, and until they can compete on the open market with all the other clubs, four players, um, they're not going to be one of the great leagues in the world, despite what Commissioner Garber says he's aiming for. That's not going to happen until they're at a level, the same level. Uh, of financial competitiveness as the other top clubs in the world are. I think it's a good aim to have, but the single entity will have to be either totally abandoned or so modified as to be hardly a factor. I mean, they have been modifying it. You've noticed it with designated players, with 
other means of spreading money around. Um, and it is. It is an artificial construct, as you said, but it's been tested in the courts. Um, it's legal. Uh, and it's worked very well for them. And without it, I don't think we would have I don't think we'd have a league. I think um, I think it was essential, at least as a start-off proposition, uh, that we had something like that, which would encourage investors to put their money in and basically tell them that this is not going to this is not going to go south quickly, and also that your club will not be relegated to some rinky-dink second league. Um, after one year or two years play that that's a that's just a non-starter um, if you want to get people I mean look at the history of pro soccer in this country it's not encouraging going back into the 30s um, there have been attempts to float pro leagues and they've all failed all of them um, including up to the NSL the most recent one so you know anybody who's looking at that is already going to have some questions to ask about whether the sport is viable um, MLS is doing its best in terms of its playing um, and in terms of building stadiums and in terms of getting publicity to prove that, yes, it is viable. But it's not in a position to start laying down the laws about things like um, promotion and relegation. I mean, that's just nonsense to be talking about. Well, I look, I... Do I, do I, do I make myself clear? I, 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 <laughs> dramatically so. And I think, so look, I, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I've kept you for almost an hour and 40 minutes, believe it or not. Um so I, I, I can't, you know, there is nobody in this country that has seen uh, this sport, uh, warts and all, uh, arguably from a an independent uh, mindset uh, without any particular vested interests. And um, I, there is a reason why you are in the Soccer Hall of Fame and uh, and why so many people have... Ah, well, I'm not in the Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, you are. They don't put, you got an award they, they put, from them. They don't put journalists in the Hall of Fame. Uh, people are telling me, well, you should object to that. But I don't object. I don't think soccer, I don't think journalists should be in the Hall of Fame. Maybe they should have their own Hall of Fame, but not one that... Uh, you know, not one that elects players and coaches and builders and all that. Journalists are supposed to be independent of all those people. So I'm, I'm not unhappy with that. I won the, whatever the award is called, the Colin Jose Award. Uh, Which is essentially uh, the, the Hall of Fame equivalent for, for journalists and scribes. And, well, the Hall of Fame is involved in it. They do the selecting and all the rest of it. But you're not actually in, inducted into the Hall of Fame for that. And, you don't get the red blazer. <laughs> so, there. So, so, so there is the headline, everybody, as you're listening all the way to the end of this episode. Uh, Paul Gardner is 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 modest. He doesn't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame, but he is really upset about that red red blazer that he does not yet have. So perhaps oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That means I've got to make do with the old well uh, gold gold blazer from uh, from ABC or the blue <laughs> one I had for NBC. I never got one from ESPN or TVS. For I, did that an, I did an ESPN college game years ago, years and years and years ago, and ESPN was just starting then. They'd been in touch with me, and they said, yes, the game, we're doing it from Delphi University out on Long Island, and you turn up at 10 o'clock in the morning, and it's a double header." And I said, well, okay, what do I wear? I expected they would say, well, don't worry, we'll, you know, we'll have a place. And they gave me elaborate instructions as to what I should wear. And when I arrived there, one of the first things that happened was that um, one of their guys came up to me and said, oh, let me pin this on you. And he had a lapel pin in his hand, which was about the size of a large fly and he pinned it onto my lapel and it said ESPN and that was it 
And when the when the telecast was over, the first guy to appear in front of me was was the same guy to reclaim the ES, ESPN pin. Couldn't even give you the pin. Well, you can see how to see how far they've come in the meantime. Uh, Paul Gardner, thank you so much. You've been a tremendous guest, and um, I look forward to hopefully staying in touch and and potentially swapping some more stories, maybe in person someday. My my goal is to have some in person interviews. Uh, as we move along here, and um, perhaps if you're if you're willing to suffer it. Okay, Tim, listen, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show, and um, good luck. Okay, there you have it. There's our conversation with the one, the only, Paul Gardner, soccer journalist extraordinaire. Uh, amazing story. I mean, we went long, and and I could have gone a lot longer. Uh, And I frankly look forward to going a lot longer uh, at some point in time in the future with Paul, hopefully in person, uh, which we'd like to do more of uh, these episodes. Paul is just a wealth of information. And, and, you know, he's been there, done that. He has he's seen the sport uh, and all the uh, uh, opportunists and the uh, business folks with dollar signs in their eyes and, you know, the soccer people who don't understand the business side and, and vice versa. And all the trials and tribulations that this sport has endured, uh, that sport of soccer here in the United States on the professional level, and frankly, still has many more chapters yet uh, to be written about. But, um, you know, Paul was there, frankly, at the earliest incarnations of the modern day game. Yes, for you completists out there, you know, the sport has certainly existed in, in, in earlier forms and much more amateur leagues and regional leagues and all that kind of stuff, no doubt. But, but, you know, that demarcation of 1966 with the World Cup being broadcast live here in the United States on NBC uh, did set the tone for the not one but two professional leagues battling to bring or usher in uh, professional soccer into the U.S. And, and almost killing the sport off even before it got off the ground. And then, and then the story of how it went further and then went up and down and up and down again. And, and now what we see today in Major League Soccer, all of that stuff, you know, is really important and frankly, not well known by a lot of folks who consider themselves today modern enthusiasts for the sport here in the United States via MLS and, and the NASL version two and the USL, et cetera. Um, so frankly, without uh, the stories and the uh, ground laying of the old NASL and, and its progeny, and its predecessors, Major League Soccer and and its ilk would not be around today and as successful and thriving as it is today. So that's why we do some of the stuff we do here on Good Seats Still Available. Thank you for joining me. GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com is the website. Go check us out. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all those great places. Send us an email, whatever you want. We're here for you and we can't thank you enough for listening. We'll see you soon on the next episode. Take care, everybody.